Uh, so there's a lot that's going to happen in 2024. 2023 uh, did not turn out to be that significant a year, in my opinion, in part because uh, the biggest issue, which I think is the Affordable Connectivity Program, did not get resolved. And that would have been the most important thing. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, where there is precious little snow on the ground and even less ice on the lakes. It's very depressing. Uh, I'm here, though, with one of my favorite guests. We have Blair Levin, a man who is the former executive director of the National Broadband Plan. Before that, he was the chief of staff at the FCC. He is currently an equity analyst on telecom policy and a non-resident fellow at Brookings. Welcome back, Blair. Thank you, Chris. I'm very sorry about your lack of snow and ice. <laughs> well, if you could do anything about it, I'm sure you would. <laughs> I would have. You know me. The uh, last year, we talked about a number of expectations. We're going to uh, revisit a few of those and talk about what's coming. First of all, let me just break the ice, uh, as it were, by asking you uh, for some reflections, maybe, on uh, 2023 and heading into 2024. What are you, what are you thinking about? What, what I'm thinking about is, you know, traditionally, 20, uh, a presidential election year is the slowest year for policy analysis in terms of markets. Basically, nothing happens that affects markets other than the election. And so as an equity analyst in a presidential election year, I would be you know, basically writing one note. If so-and-so was elected, well, that, this happens. And if the other person's elected, that happens. But this year is very, very different. Well, especially because ordinarily at this time, you might be looking at results of Iowa and saying, well, if this person's elected, we could go this way. And yeah, right. but we kind of know who we're going to end up with. A lot of people don't know it yet, but we know. Yeah, and we could spend the whole time talking about that. But but my point is, it's a very consequential year, partly because the FCC didn't get a majority Democrats until last fall. And so they've got to finish up the Title II. And there are certain things, you know, they've passed something on digital discrimination. But whether they're going to do any enforcement, if it's not going to happen next year, it's not going to happen. But the big thing is the following. Number one, uh, we're going to know a lot more about universal service and how we close the digital divide. We have the BEAD program. We have the um, universal service program being challenged in the courts. We have the affordable connectivity program probably running out of money uh, sometime in April. And I would say from my own personal point of view, that in a way is the only issue in the sense that that issue affects more people more dramatically. It affects broadband more dramatically than anything else we're going to talk about. So those are very big things. We've also got DISH. The ironic thing is the biggest policy issue is not about policy. It's about markets. If DISH succeeds, then the way you think about policy is going to be different. If DISH fails and goes into bankruptcy, then how you think about how do we do deal with the fact that we basically have a duopoly on fixed and uh, a triopoly on wireless and what, what are the implications of that? So that's a really big thing. The Supreme Court is going to do some very big cases. Uh, so there's a lot that's going to happen in 2024, not to mention what's going to happen in 2025. 2023 uh, did not turn out to be that significant a year, in my opinion, in part because uh, the biggest issue, which I think is the Affordable Connectivity Program, did not get resolved. And that would have been the most important thing. Right. It seems like uh, what they say about car accidents, anything you can walk away from. Right. That's how I feel about years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, we're, we're walking away from 2023. It's not known whether we'll walk away from 2024 or whether right. the car wreck will be more dramatic. 
So I agree with you regarding, I think the thing that impacts the most people in a very real way is the affordable connectivity program slated to run out of money. We're preparing, we're trying to dig in to really better understand exactly what the implications are, the timings, what's going to happen. Um, and so uh, for people who aren't aware, I mean, I think our forecasts are very early part of Q2. We expect it to to run out of money. Um, and, uh, and so preparations must be underway everywhere for how they're going to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, we do not expect Congress to do anything about it. Uh, mm -hmm. The White House might be able to move some money around, but it seems like that's all the White House is doing right now. I don't know how much they can they can do that for the amounts that we're talking about. Um, but uh, that then leads us into USF reform. So why don't we start with ACP and then move into the prospects for universal service reform? Um, when you look at the ACP, do you have any hope that there is not substantial disruption of that program this year? So what my years of working on Wall Street have taught me to, is, is to think not in terms of black and white, but rather probabilities. Mm -hmm. And I would say, do I have hope? Yeah. But the probabilities are low that there will not be disruption. And, and, the, and there are multiple problems with disruption, including the fact that a lot of low-income people, part, part of the problem they're going to have is, you know, they're going to default, they're not going to understand, um, they don't trust, it's, it's going to be harder to make the program work next time. Because eventually we are going to fund this. Uh, there are various reasons I have confidence of that. It's just that the stars have not aligned uh, for us to refund it this time. And I, I do think a lot of the people that are behind those decision-making, I think aside from perhaps having some choice words for them, I don't think they always appreciate how much damage is about to be done for the different nonprofit organizations and social service folks that have been getting people to sign up for ACP and what damage it will do to their reputations and whatnot. Um, I, in good conscience, I don't know that we can encourage people to sign new people up for ACP right now because of the changes that are coming. Now, as I understand it, uh, the ACP will require customers to consent before their bills go up. Many of them presumably won't read the emails or get the letters that are mailed to them, warning them that this is about to happen. And so uh, they will either be cut off or the companies will happen to be going to significant collections. I don't really care that much if Comcast has a lot of problems, but like there's a lot of ISPs out there that are smaller. And frankly, I don't think companies like Comcast deserve to have a big headache over a program like this. So like, it just to me, it seems like an unmitigated disaster that we are we are sailing into. Yes, <laughs> unmitigated disaster. I, there are other words that we sh we shouldn't use uh, on the radio, or except that this is a podcast. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be awful. And uh, you know, look again as an equity analyst, I would say it's the single biggest uh, cloud uh, in the near term hanging over uh, the companies. It, it is curious to me that the companies have spent a lot of money fighting uh, Title II fighting the digital discrimination issue. And I understand why they're fighting it. And I'm not saying they were being irrational. I am saying that if they had taken that money and used it on on various ways of getting certain messages out, and we could go into what those messages should be about ACP, I think ACP would be in much better shape. And they're literally going to lose billions of dollars. And they're going to, the disruption is what's really going to be problematic to them. I mean, nobody wants to suddenly cut off Johnny, who's, you know, a fourth grader who's doing great in school because he has, you know, access to broadband in the home and he's getting straight A's and he, he'll be the first kid in his family to, to go to college. And then suddenly in May, he's got no broadband 
he gets all C's, he's depressed. I mean, that's a story that is going to be duplicated a lot of times. And Comcast does not want that. You don't want that. I don't want that. I don't believe anybody in the Congress wants that. But what we see happening throughout the federal government is things we don't want to have happen, happen anyway, for a variety of bizarre reasons. So one of the things that we have hope for in terms of then getting back on track, because I think any solution that we see at this point that would put more money into ACP or an ACP-like solution will come after that disruption has happened, just because there's a pipeline effect for how fast things can happen. One of the things that's been talked about is USF reform, Universal Service Fund reform. Um, we've seen no sign that that Chairwoman Rosenworcel has any interest in doing this. Um, she is somewhat timid as it is. This is an election year, as you noted. Uh, all of the signs are suggesting to me that um, if the FCC were to take this on, uh, it would almost require divine intervention. Yeah, no, look, the FCC is not doing anything on this. Oh, that That's very clear. The FCC was required by the infrastructure bill to do a report to Congress on the future of USF after the B program and after all the other things that Congress has funded in the infrastructure bill and in other things. And frankly, I'm look, I'm a big fan of the folks at the FCC. I work with a lot of them twice. Um, they're dedicated public servants. But oh my God, the report was such a disappointment. The the first thing the report should have done should have been to articulate, here are the potential things USF in the future may need to fund. We we probably won't need to fund the CapEx of more than a very small number of projects anytime in the future. But we still need to fund this and that or whatever. And here's a budget. Here's what we think is a reasonable budget for those things. There was no economic analysis in the report. That's the first thing you have to do. It proposed a number of proceedings that it, that the FCC hasn't done. So no, there's a bipartisan effort in Congress, very doubtful that it'll result in anything in 24. I do think there's hope in 25 uh, for Congress doing something, um, regardless of what happens in the election, because it is one of those issues where you can see a political consensus forming. But you know, another wild card is the Fifth Circuit, which in September heard en banc, which means all the judges, a challenge to the current universal service program, they're probably going to decide against the FCC, but they, they might do it in a way that the FCC can quickly fix the problem. But they might do it in a way that totally blows up the program. I think that decision gets stayed. I think the Supreme Court takes the case. And I think ultimately the FCC wins. But I'm not, you know, there there is definitely going to be uncertainty about that. And if the Supreme Court in 2025 says, that the current system, you can't do it. Congress has to fund the program. Well, then we're in a really different uh, era. So there's a lot of challenges and a lot of uncertainty out, out there. And for people who haven't followed this very closely, uh, this basically comes down to a way that I would put it is the judiciary is increasingly hostile to the federal government acting in certain ways. And it is questionable whether the judiciary will allow an executive agency to determine how much money to collect and sort of have its own ability to raise funds outside of Congress and have a, this program that more or less operates forever um, outside of of uh, additional reappropriations from Congress. That is a fair summary of, of that. <laughs> it's not clear that, that there's a certain majority for that point of view in this case. In the cases where they have overturned 
federal agency authority, one consistent element is that there is a major industry interest in overturning it, which just happens to also coincide with a major industry, which is a major contributor to the Republican Party, not to get too cynical. But um, the so-called major question doctrine has not been applied, as far as I can tell, in a situation where an agency is acting in a way that industry likes. And industry is on the FCC side here. So I wouldn't give up all hope that the court's going <laughs> to uh, support the FCC and industry. But um, there are a number of judges who basically b believe in this so-called the doctrine that Congress should not be able to delegate the power to raise funds to an agency. And that is a very nice way of putting it. Uh, you know, I, I really liked, I think it was Scalia who wrote that Congress does not hide uh, elephants in mouse holes or something along those lines. Something like that, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I can appreciate that. However, it's pretty clear that, that these folks believe that Congress does hide certain elephants in certain mouse holes and cannot hide other things in other places. So, um, you know, I, I, I would say once again, I would agree with you that this is something that we see more from a... Uh, Republican Party that has departed from longtime norms uh, of of action around a lot of this stuff. So, so that's USF reform. Um, there may be hope in 2025. Uh, at this point, I have significant questions about how many commissioners we have, depending on who controls the Senate, who's won the presidency. It's a lot of things will be up in the air for then. But uh, you know, I, I would expect that we will see a lot of disruption around ACP. Uh, unfortunately, this year, and there will be a hope of of moving forward next year with a program that, frankly, I find increasingly hard to justify. And if um, not because I want it to be gone, but for reasons that you and I discussed last year, and if people want to check out last year's show from January 2023, I encourage them to. Uh, but I want to move on to some of the other things we talked about there. We talked there about, I mean, I think it's about 18 months now from when it was clear that fixed wireless was going to be taking significant subs subscribers from the big cable companies. Yeah. Um, I think some of the equity analysts expected that to slow down in 2023. And I'm curious if that did and, and what you're expecting in terms of, of fixed wireless in 2024. I don't think it slowed down. I think it is one of the biggest bets on Wall Street uh, in, in terms of other than DISH. The other biggest bet, I think, on broadband is how how far does fixed wireless taking share go? The general view that I uh, tend to agree with is that in rural and exurban areas where there's more spectrum, um, it can take a significant amount of market share. It can keep growing. However, as those areas get more fiber and as you know, we, we use bandwidth for more and more things, you know, there's just a race between these two different ways of doing it. Wireless can be cheaper. But if people really want to watch high definition 4K videos in three different rooms, you know, all streaming, they're going to have to do something other than wireless. And even more so on Sunday night when all the neighbors are doing it, too. That's exactly right. So I, I think there are some bandwidth constraints. There's not a lot of new spectrum coming online uh, to the wireless guys anytime soon. So I think it's it's fundamentally a, a combination of technology and spectrum constraints uh, in terms of limitations. Now, regarding the dish build-out, 
you know, we talked before about, and I think I actually misspoke. I, I said Carl Bodie, but actually, I think I meant Neelai Patel, who's been uh, anti-dish and uh, comical about it uh, for a long time now. Uh, what have we learned in 2023? And 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 what do you think? Do you think that 2024 will sunset and we'll know whether dish will succeed or not? We'll certainly have a better idea. Uh, a, a number of people, Colin Powell, Secretary of Treasury Rubin, have said things like, you know, if you make a decision with less than 20% of the information, you're making it too soon. But if you make it with 80%, you're making it too late. Wall Street tends to make it in that between the 40-yard lines. Uh, we're not there yet, but we probably will be between the 40-yard lines by the end of the year. And DISH has met all the established metrics that the FCC has given it in terms of build-out. So that's the positive case. But the fact that they couldn't get the option on the 800 megahertz that they had from T-Mobile based on the T-Mobile Sprint deal and the Department of Justice consent decree. Um, the fact that you know the stock is way down, it's telling you that Wall Street is very, very skeptical of their ability to succeed. And part of that's markets and part of it's just kind of uh, Ergen is facing a chasm in terms of capital constraints. Uh, that Wall Street is very skeptical that he'll be able to get over. I don't I don't have a strong point of view on it because it's not what I do well. I will say simply that I believe that if he needs certain things from the government in order to get across that chasm and that the government can reasonably give him that, such as allowing him to sell some spectrum, I think the government does that. Um, and the, the government is going to prioritize keeping him in the game and keeping that network as a potential fourth uh, facilities-based competitor. That is a very high priority. And that's where why we're talking about it. I think you know there might be people who are wondering, Chris, why do you even care about this so much? And I think it has implications not only for mobile wireless pricing and fixed wireless build-out potentially, but something that you and I talked about last year, which was a likely merger um, between a charter and a major wireless company uh, or other things that will be more or less likely based on dynamics in the wireless market. Um, Now, I I am curious, would you have expected there to have been a major merger? Um, It feels like 2023, we more or less avoided any of that um you know um we didn't see comcast really gobbling up anyone i think people are watching to see what happens with peacock and and whatnot but um it feels like somehow we did escape a lot of mergers and it seems like maybe there's action in the beltway that's threatening mergers in some ways although uh, you pay close attention to this the court cases haven't always gone the way of the the regulators trying to encourage competition so there's a lot of different factors going on what do you see regarding mergers yeah, I, I, I certainly I don't think I projected any mergers of importance in 2023. Um, the one news coming out of the FCC was the rejection of the Tegna deal, which wasn't a merger and wasn't really about consolidation. It's still not clear to me what it was about exactly. <laughs> uh, but certainly I, like other people, did not think that, though I knew that the chairwoman had the option of having the Bureau essentially kill the deal uh, with a pocket veto, I didn't think that was what was going to happen um, but it did happen, and I think that ended a lot of investment in in the broadcast realm. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. But look, in the telecom realm, you you can't have any more mergers between wireless providers. You can't have really any mergers between major ca- cable operators. Altice may be for sale, but 
you know, but uh, th that's not likely. So the merger that people are looking toward is will there be a what we might think of as a convergence merger of a fixed wired network with a wireless uh, network um, with T-Mobile always being the one that people talk about because AT&T and Verizon would have to divest too many assets. Plus, you have a situation where both the DOJ and the FTC are being tougher on mergers than than they have been in the past. I think the window is going to open up again. And the reason why is if you if you were to announce a merger today, the odds are it would be decided by the winner of the election. If you think the winner is going to be Biden and you think that the DOJ or FTC won't approve it, but you want to get it to court, you might as well offer it now. But if you think Trump's going to win, you might as well offer it now. So I think that the, kind of the political window starts to open up. Interest rates start to go down again. But where I think we're going to see it is on the media side. Now, we could really go down a rabbit hole with this one. But the deal that's being talked about is the Paramount um, Discovery Warner deal. I am pretty skeptical of that because of the debt load of the companies and for some other reasons. But if they proceed with that, it'll be a really interesting fight. We have not yet had a merger where the government has been forced to confront whether streaming is part of the video product market. At some point, they're going to have to address that question. And when they do, lots of other things start to fall apart. And obviously, it affects Comcast, but I think it affects the whole ecosystem. And I don't want to take up too much time on that because it's too speculative. But where, when I think about mergers, there's the U.S. cellular merger. I think there'll probably be some announcement of a DBS merger, but I don't think those things are that big or important. The mergers between AT&T, Verizon, and, or the big cable companies, um, you'd mentioned they have to divest too many assets. And I think there's also a sense that um, uh, that would be too a step too far, right? Kind of like um, uh, Comcast buying uh, Time Warner Cable is seen as a step too far, too much consolidation. I think that's right, though. It was interesting because the precedent for blocking that deal, uh, the Comcast Time Warner Cable deal, was a little bit tricky because it was really what was called a geographic expansion merger. Those are generally allowed because they're not competing in the same geographic market. But um, but the DOJ <laughs> and the FCC were able to block it. Of course, Charter was then able to buy it. So now we have two big cable companies, and that's probably a better thing. And it's interesting because they they have different incentives. Charter does not own content. Comcast does. Um, on, on the other hand, they both have a similar incentive to, shall we say, use wireless both as defense and offense. You, you, you could see a joint venture in wireless between those. In fact, in a, in a lot of ways, you already see that, um, uh, though, though much more informal in terms of R&D and stuff like that. If DISH succeeds, I think it opens the door. And of course, there's also the question whether any of the tech folks are interested in these things. I think they know that certainly under the Biden administration, a major tech company buying almost anything of size is a problem. So uh, I, I don't see that. On the other hand, under Trump, I think Comcast believes they won't be allowed to buy anything as long as they own MSNBC. Yes. No, I would expect that that would be uh, the case. I mean, all the signs that we that I see among the political voices that I trust uh, suggest that uh, a second Trump term uh, would likely be uh, one that is lawless in ways that uh, we have not experienced in our lifetimes. Uh, I don't know that it's totally unprecedented, but um, 
even if it was precedent, it was pretty pretty ugly precedent back back in those days in terms of the the naked political power and, and whatnot. I, I may be the only person who will hear this show who was alive during the Nixon administration and remembers, you know, very clearly the day Nixon had to resign and remembers the Watergate hearing. And what I would simply say is his lawlessness was, shall we say, somewhat constrained. Right. No, I was I was actually thinking more like 1800s robber barons type right. of stuff. Right. <laughs> Teapot right. dome scandal. like <laughs> Yeah, which is the 1900s. But but I, I think that's that's right. And particularly as to this, the the notion that, you know, there's an old saying among autocrats for our friends, uh, mercy for our enemies, justice. If the notion is if you want to get your deal done, the first thing we're going to look at is your relationship with us. Um, that's very problematic, particularly for any companies that have content. Right. Now, we I did want to slide into the AT&T and OpenRAN uh, before we wrap up Wireless Totally, which yeah. um, uh, there was a light reading discussion with uh, Mike, Dan- Mike Dano, who uh, I've enjoyed reading. I still don't fully understand all the OpenRAN stuff. But I am excited about anything that is open yeah. <laughs> in terms of moving away from proprietary systems and whatnot. And it seems like this was kind of a step in the right direction towards more openness and at the same time is nakedly about AT&T just lowering the cost of the gear that it buys uh is my sense of it but um but that is tied up with the with whether or not dish wins i think is is to some extent this battle over proprietary versus a more interoperable technology in the future right and that is happening yeah yeah look i i the open ran thing is very complicated and difficult it certainly was very interesting to everybody on wall street what it meant for at&t what it meant for ericsson who they struck the deal with what it meant for nokia who essentially was uh, effectively the loser on that one. But look, it's a big problem for security. I mean, we're going to go outside of the United States now to say that Huawei has done much better than people were hoping <laughs> in the United States and in, in terms of becoming kind of a dominant firm around the world for equipment and getting all the benefits of the economies of scale. And that's a very disturbing thing. And so the question is, how does the United States have a policy that enables not just consumers in the United States to have access to the best possible services at the lowest, lowest possible price, but also how the U.S. model and other U.S. companies can lead the world? That's a big problem. I, I hope the AT&T ORAN issue moves us in that direction. AT&T was obviously more interested in the lower prices than the word open. Um uh, I don't think they were doing it out of a patriotic thing. I'm not saying you're not a patriotic company. I'm just saying. I'll um, say it. You don't have yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, but they um, they they clearly saw an economic opportunity. But I think it's a much longer run thing. And, you know, look, the 5G thing is in a way already run its course. And so what we're talking about is will the architecture of 6G be an entirely different architecture? To some extent, like I do feel like, and this is one of those things. I'll just be upfront about it. There is a fair amount of like anti-Chinese sentiment that is racially motivated. Uh, and there's also sentiment from people that I that I read and whatnot who recognize that China, China is an authoritarian country that, like Russia, wants to undermine our um, system of, of a more open society. 
Um, and so I do feel like if we're honest about it, like we have to choose between whether we want uh, the United States government possibly able to peek into traffic or whether we want China possibly ever to, able to peek into traffic. Both of them strongly deny that they would ever, ever do that sort of a thing. But I think it's pretty clear that that it's on the table uh, for either one in different circumstances. There's privacy issues. There's national security issues. There's, there's a huge host of issues. Th th those issues are not going away. I'm not sure the ele the election will determine a lot of issues. I'm not sure it'll determine that one because I think both Biden and Trump have a have a similar view that China is a competitive threat. But you know, it is very difficult, in my opinion, to get a bunch of countries to align with your point of view when your whole mantle is America first. When you're saying you do what I want because this is good for me, I don't know. You know, like I've done a lot of things in politics. And, I don't think I've ever convinced anyone vote for something because it's good for me. You know, it's like that's really the way you try to do these things. And I think in terms of international relationships, whether we'll be able to have any kind of consensus with NATO or others uh, on these kinds of issues, very questionable in my mind, if we have an American first foundation. Well, and there was a paper that I honestly did not understand also at the time that was advanced within the Trump orbit during his presidency in which they called for a, a federal, uh, I think, publicly owned national 5G network. A number of people that I think of as allies and who are for public ownership, I think, were, were intrigued by that. I've, we're, my organization, we've always been for local public ownership, and we do not like the idea of federal public ownership in a lot of circumstances. I, I mean, depending on the circumstance, it might make more or less sense, but that was not intriguing to me, <laughs> oddly enough. Um, but the, you no, could. It, it was a very interesting couple of weeks, and the rumor, there, there was a big leak of it in my world, a lot of speculation about who leaked it uh, a couple of weeks before the um, State of the Union, I think the 2018 State of the Union. And, and, uh, if it had gone into the State of the Union, it would have been a very interesting thing. But uh, it was being driven by various people, um, including people like Karl Rove and others with great Republican credentials. Um, and the Defense Department was apparently involved as well. But it went nowhere. Right. But I guess my point is just to remind people that uh, these things are not always predictable in terms of, of who gets a presidency or at a given time and what results from it. Well, what I would say is the normal left-right analysis does not apply. That what you see is Republicans, you know, you have the states of Florida and Texas, this is a little bit off of uh, our, our main line, but basically adopting laws that say, we, we are going to give you a must-carry regime for social media. Well, that's a pretty significant federal, I mean, state government intrusion into private property, not what you usually think of when you think of Republicans, but what you should think of now, you know. So there's yes. all kinds of things where the normal left-right does not make sense. It's not predictive or an accurate descriptor of, of what's going on. And nor are the new dynamics at all internally consistent. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I recognize it more on the right, but I see it on the left too. Right. <laughs> so right. um, for bead expectations, I'm curious, you know, we're, I don't think in 12 months, we're going to see a significant amount of anything changing at that point. The money will likely be in most of the state's coffers and on our, on their way to ISPs. Uh, we might have a few networks that have received some dollars and are starting to get in the ground. Um, Louisiana is very impressive at how dedicated the governor and the staff are to having something they can brag about before people cast ballots in November. Uh, so as best I can tell, that seems to be the strategy and it's working well. Louisiana is funny because you're going to have a new governor. Um, but I think the, the prior governor and, and the head of the broadband office have done a fantastic job and they're really um, among the leading states in articulating both what they want to accomplish and also how to accomplish it. it and I think it's a real tribute to them because it's not easy. Look, I, my expectations are not dissimilar, which is a lot of checks will be written in the year 2024, a lot of groundbreakings in 2025. At the end of the day, you're going to look at the glass that's about 90% full. That is to say, somewhere between 97 and 99% of the country, in terms of locations, homes, and businesses, will have access to a robust broadband network. And in 99% of those cases, it'll be fiber. Well, that's that's an accomplishment. It's a great accomplishment. We're going to waste a bunch of money in doing that. And you can focus on the waste of money or you can focus on the accomplishment. I've spent most of my life in the private sector, by the way, the private sector wastes a lot of money too. But, but you know, there's lots of different reasons for that. But my point is, I think BEAD is, you know, it's on its way. There's definitely criticisms you could have of it, I could have of it. But at the end of the day, it's going to kind of get done. And then the question is, what are the, what left do we have to do? If we have not solved the affordability divide, and that's what the ACP is all about, we are way, way behind the eight ball. In fact, in the year 2024, the United States of America is likely to take the biggest step backwards ever in terms of closing the digital divide, in terms of increasing it, which is astonishing. But we, you and I have already talked about that. But there are other divides. There's a training divide. There's institutional divides. There's rural companies that still will need uh, operating support. One issue that I think is getting no attention, but in the last part of the decade, we'll start to get a lot of attention, is what we might think of as the fiber-copper divide. That is to say, when you look at markets that have cable versus fiber, the consumer experience will be much better than in, in those communities where you have cable versus copper. And I don't know whether the number is 20 million homes, 40 million homes, whatever. But it's not small. And it's not huge, but it's not small. Well, what do we do about that? Um, and I mention that because no one's really focused on that today. But I think in years to come, mayors are going to be focused on that. Doug Dawson was writing about not just a big city problem, it's a small uh, town problem as well, because fiber can cherry pick uh, where they're going to build. But I would say what Memphis recently did is very interesting. By lowering certain barriers to entry, they've and they've enticed people to build out fiber. I think only 24% of the city right now has fiber. The whole city has cable. But by getting a new entrant in there, that's a really interesting model. We'll see if it works. We'll see if it's applicable to others. But that's another problem down the road that when you invite me back in 2027 or 2028, we can talk about that. 
Well, one of the things I wonder is, and I'm I'm curious if you want to take a bet, we'll revisit at that point. Um, when you said different communities, I actually think it's different neighborhoods and even sub neighborhood areas because of what you mentioned in terms of that cherry picking issue, which we'll see in with certain providers we see and other providers for profit and nonprofit both um, avoid uh, cherry picking. Uh, they'll yeah. they go to serve everyone. Um, so oh, hats off to those providers. But I'm curious whether you think and let's call it uh, 2027. By then, will we have an FCC that will have collected data? That will allow us to actually know <laughs> where this is happening, uh, you know, which is to say accurate location data and pricing data. My guess is uh, I'll take the under on that. Uh, which is to say, I think the answer is probably going to be no. If the Republicans win, the answer is almost certainly going to be no. They're not big into data collection. If the Democrats win, it's a it's a more complicated story. I think the desire is there. We, we did this when we were doing the national broadband plan and we saw some of the difficult politics of it. You really have to be tough because the industry does not want to give you the data. Part of that is for good reasons. That data has a lot of competitive value, and they are they do not want it to be shared in various ways. It's also very dynamic data because they're constantly looking at it and changing it. Just among the biggest providers, to be clear. Right, right, right. right. right Small right. providers almost never change their prices. <laughs> they just yeah, right. <laughs> but in any event, what what I would say is, based on the experience of the Democrats to date, uh, I think the odds are that's not one that they choose to die on that hill. Yeah. And then one other prediction that uh, I think I'll have made publicly before this comes out, but I still love to get your opinion. I don't think there's a way in which uh, in 2024, we actually see the FCC do anything on the new digital discrimination rule. Uh, because it has to be on actions that have been undertaken since the rule was adopted. And that will take a while before one could claim that you have evidence of new digital discrimination. And then that would have to work its way through the system, which I don't think many at the FCC have an incentive to, to do. And to the extent that they do, it probably won't be public. And so I would expect that we don't see anything um, resulting from that docket in the calendar year. I think that's right. Um, I would make a similar prediction, in fact, I haven't published it yet, but I, I've written <laughs> Wall Street, a similar prediction to you. Uh, I guess this is the category of great minds think alike. And and I think there's an important point here, which is if you were going to do something, you would do it in the first year. You would say, it's great that Congress passed this law requiring us to set the standards, but because of these standards, we now see here's the harm. But one of the interesting things in the decision was they never pointed to anything that was said, here's the harm we're trying to address. And so what that tells me, and there are some other procedural things that are very subtle, but it tells me that they don't see what the problem is. And we'll, we'll see. I don't, I, I don't think that will happen. Nor, by the way, you know, we're going to have a Title II decision probably April, May or something like that. But there, too, it'll take a while for it to go into effect. But I don't think any kind of enforcement action mm -hmm. comes out of that. Well, you know, let's follow up for a second as we wrap up. But the last thing we'll talk about is this. Does the FCC see that there's a problem? I mean, to some extent, I feel like you and I have somewhat different takes on some areas, but we're both people who I think are pro-market with our eyes open. And I think if we look at the FCC, the FCC says... Congress said we're going to have a competitive system, and what do you want us to do? Like a competitive system means everyone is able to act in their rational self-interest. There are higher costs and lower revenue opportunities in some neighborhoods, and so the market is not feeding them. We cannot fix that 
And the point that I always make is I don't want the FCC to fix that. Like, I don't think that the FCC forcing AT&T to invest more in Cleveland actually advances anyone's interest. And so this isn't a problem for the FCC, I think. And so maybe the FCC is right to just keep saying, don't look to us to solve this. Well, the FCC is not saying that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but the impact of what the FCC is saying is the same. In other words, you are 100% right that no one should think that the FCC as currently constituted or as likely to be constituted uh, thinks that that is a problem that they're they're going to solve. And in a way, I as I look at the law, I kind of agree with them. Having said that, you know, one of the things that I told the staff of the National Broadband Plan is what we really want to do is solve all the problems that but for our efforts would exist five to 10 years from now. We're going to solve them ahead of time. And that's what led to things like, you know, the broadcast incentive auction, FirstNet. It actually led to Google Fiber in an interesting way, which we shouldn't go into. And I wish the FCC would, would articulate what you and I have discussed here, which is the copper fiber divide is a problem. But what we need now is for local governments to be looking at it like Memphis. I would have loved for a bunch of FCC commissioners to praise Memphis Right. Because giving that attention to Memphis and what they're doing might have inspired other mayors and you pull together people. And look, there's a lot of different ways of doing these things. Getting back to, again, the ACP, which I think is the biggest uh, issue. One of the things that's just been striking to me is other than FCC saying, oh, we really wish you kind of would maybe possibly fund this again. You have not seen the FCC as an effective lobbying tool. And there's limits to how they can lobby, but giving Congress the information that would cause them to say, oh, by God, we really need to fund this. The FCC has not been effective advocates for that. And it's the most important thing they could do. And they're not doing it. As we as we really do wrap up uh, a comment that I think you said toward the end of our last one was a sense that the FCC is increasingly led by people, I think, who are a little bit more political in nature than used to be the case. Um, they, have a, they have a little less expertise in the industry and in the technology. And, and that's one of the things I think we've seen from uh, the appointments, not to take away from the capability of anyone who's on the commission necessarily, but it does seem to me like that is uh, the trend and it is uh, not serving an expert agency well, I don't think. So I agree with that, but what I would tell you is um, one of the interesting things to me is if you ask the question, which of the Biden appointees has really been of consequence? And I would point to two. One is Gina Raimondo at Secretary of Commerce, and the other is Lena Khan. Partly I do that because their names rhyme, which I find to be amusing. Uh, the other reason is that they in very different ways and are seen as kind of being at the ideological ends of what the Biden spectrum would be. They have both been very consequential. Gina has gotten, she got the chips money and she got the beads money and she did the natural spectrum plan. And, you know, she's doing all the, she's doing a bunch of AI stuff and all that. She really works it well. And uh, Lena, on the other hand, not just the antitrust litigation, but covenants not to compete and all kinds of other things. I, I happen to have had dealings with both of them. And what I would tell you is they're both fundamentally fearless. They're both fundamentally mission-driven. They are focused on doing big things. And I just don't see people at the FCC taking a look back and saying, at this moment in time, what's the big thing? I mean, to me, the big thing is just getting everybody on broadband. 
mm-hmm. but I don't see them focused on it. No, I see them focusing and talking about how they're doing it, but not actually doing it, which right. uh, it seems to be perhaps uh, summing up uh, a whole generation of, uh, of action, not, not, not a generation of people, but just the, the milieu, I believe is the word. <laughs> so Blair, uh, as always, wonderful to spend time talking with you. Thank you for your time and, and all the work that you do. And I look forward to your next trip to D.C. Sounds good. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at communitynuts.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow communitynets.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. (laughs) 